Well, welcome back. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy and we're hitting chapter two at this point. And we'll have some work to do in chapter two and some reminders for all of us. But before I go further, there's something I should have mentioned last week I did not. And that is, I said that Paul was writing this while under house arrest in Rome. That is only one theory. The other theory is that 1 Timothy chapter one, verse three would indicate he was still in Macedonia and was in the process of all of the problems that would come later that would have him end up in Rome. I don't know that, that either of these two are super critical for understanding the book at all, uh, but we need it out there. And while I'm doing that, you may as well know that a great many scholars do not believe that Paul wrote any of the books of Timothy or Titus. And their reasons for this is because Paul does not reference uh, what happened in the closing chapters of Acts, that they believe the church organization seems a bit further along than it was in 61 AD. Uh, in other words, uh, another generation had passed or so before elders and bishops were in churches. But I think an answer to that one is that elder and bishop and presbyter were used interchangeably at this time. And so I don't think we can use the church organization argument to make this a long, uh, a later book. To me, it sounds Pauline, uh, as in from Paul. And I don't have any problem with saying that Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. There, there are more questions about 2 Timothy, but I still think Paul wrote it. So just be aware if I don't bring up all these controversies, it doesn't mean I don't know them. If, however, you think one should be brought up send a message in to info at rsafeharbor.com and I'll do my best to deal with it. All right, sounds good, let's go. Paul now needs to, by remote, send messages to Timothy about how worship works. Now, you would think that this was already well known because many of the early Christians were Jews. Uh, most of the early Christians were Jews. But when the Gentiles came in, their system of worship didn't look like the Jewish system of worship. Well, to be honest, most of the Gentiles coming in had been pagans or atheists before, and by the atheists were all over the place back in this time. But they would have worshipped in a more raucous way, uh, some in an obscene way. They certainly didn't go to synagogue and sit and or stand in rows and solemnly read scripture and speak back and forth like this. That wasn't a part of their culture. Uh, they'd never experienced it. They would have felt very, very foreign, even though they may have thought it beautiful. I thought of that um, when I attended an Orthodox church. Their worship is very different from anything I've seen in Protestant churches or in the Roman Catholic church. And while I felt it was beautiful, I also felt lost during a lot of it because it wasn't my culture. Now, of course, if any of you are thinking this, I am too. And that is, had I stayed? and continually attended and talked and asked questions, I could have assimilated into that. But the problem, that's not what was going on here. The Gentiles were told to believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God, to live a life of love and service following Jesus, to share their goods and their community with all. They weren't told by God to stand in a line or do a liturgy of any kind. And they, they didn't feel the need to be assimilated into Jewish culture. That really upset some of the Jews. 
So they pushed harder, which really upset some of the Gentiles. How are we supposed to worship now? Timothy is working with a lot of Gentiles and with some believing Jews. Uh, and he is work, he's working in Ephesus. He's working in Corinth. He's working in different places that Paul has already been. And most of the time, I think I'm all right saying most of the time, that Timothy was with him or near him during a lot of that particular portion of his life. So now you've got this, and if you've read Corinthians and you've read Ephesians and you've read Acts, as we have done on this uh, journey, you know that it is, um, it's a mess. Corinth, the Corinth church was just, just a complete mess. I don't know of anybody, no matter how desperate they are for a ministry job, that would have willingly gone to Corinth. Of course, Paul went. Paul's a tough dude. And he, again and again and again, had to write them letters. We think four letters, uh, two we have, but there are references within those two to other letters that we do not have. So the current theory is four at least letters. It was a problem. And then you go to Ephesus where Diana of the Ephesians ruled the roost and where paganism with a female God was, was what everybody did. It was just what was expected. And now you're trying to bring them in together. This is gonna be an issue. We, we've been in churches before where half the church was military and half was hippie. As I'm dating myself in the 70s. And it was always fascinating to see the juxtaposition and, and see that both sides wanted the other side to be more like them because they were just absolutely certain that God wanted them, that Jesus wanted them to be more like them. Well, how do you, how do you regulate gathering the community and help them get along? That's what chapter two is about. And again, it wasn't a chapter when Paul wrote it. We're the ones that divided it. We're the ones that put verses there. Do yourself a favor, get a Bible with no chapter and verse divisions. Get one also that's chronological, uh, but as your everyday Bible, it's fine for it not to be chronological. It changes everything when you remove the chapter and verse designate. It absolutely does. Give it a go. Well. I urge then, first of all, that request prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I need you to start working on a pattern with me here. And that is, are we looking at a pattern? Do you begin your worship with a prayer for the president, uh, his cabinet, or whenever you're watching this, maybe her cabinet. Uh, do you pray for uh, Putin? Do you pray for the prime minister of Breton, which right now is uh, up in the air? I'm recording this in our very early August, but I know that they're going to have to put somebody in there to replace Boris Johnson. Do you pray for the leaders of the world? Now, you don't have to know their names. I'm not trying to say that. I, I don't it's very rare that I hear a prayer for the leaders of our nations. And when I do, I immediately tense up because more often than not, the prayer gets into political areas where we're so grateful that God you know, has given us this leader that's going to do this, or dear God, move this leader so they won't do all these sins. And most churches have people that voted for both sides 
didn't vote for either the two major parties or wrote in one or, or, wrote, or, or voted for a minority one and those who don't believe it's proper for a Christian to vote and those who believe that it's proper for a Christian to vote, but not up to the level of president or senator. Believe it or not, almost every church, you're going to have all of these. If you're thinking, well, not in my church, well, that means they're underground. It's, it's rather like the Iranian uh, leader who, what was it, about 15 years ago, was approached by Western reporters saying, how can you um, just routinely kill homosexuals in your country? And his response was, well, we don't have any. Well, of course you do. But they're underground out of fear, uh, legitimate fear, that the government's hunting them and will kill them. In some churches, you'll never know the politics of the person next to you because they don't want you to know. So how do we do this? I think we do it just like Paul said. We don't pray that the leader change. We thank God that we have leaders that make decisions. You know, I certainly want, wouldn't want to be president. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be king of anything. So we thank God that we have them. We ask God to give them wisdom that they will bend toward his will. I mean, all of these things are apolitical. But if you're doing a prayer service for one president, do one for the next one, regardless of whether you liked them or not. That is a That does get to me. I found that in some churches, they'll have prayer times for the, for the president, but only if it's the one they like. No, you can't do that. And so we can ask God to bless them. I've had people say, how can you ask them to bless them when they have all of these stances? <coughs> and the stances might be about war or abortion or, <coughs> excuse me, any other, um, any other hot button issue at the time. My response is God blessing them doesn't mean that God is approving of all of their positions or of yours. Rather, wouldn't you like God to be in the heart and in the, in the mind and in the plans of whoever is leading a country? I'm not saying I want a, a minister to be in charge because I really don't. I want somebody who knows how to handle all this stuff. We need to be praying for Putin. Uh, and again, this is about six weeks before you'll see this, maybe seven weeks. So who knows what's going to happen in the intervening seven. But where I am right now on the 1st of August, Putin um, is waging a war that should not be done. He has taken control of his country in a way we've not seen since the, the Soviet Union era. He has shut down dissent from science and from church. Can you pray for Putin? Absolutely. He doesn't seem to be a well man from reports coming out. We can pray that God bless him, that God turn his heart, but we cannot ask God to make people do something they don't want to do. Your prayers do not trump their free will. So we just keep asking God to send messengers to them. Send, as one poet referred to the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven because he goes and hunts and seeks those hearts that will respond positively. And also we pray because <clears throat> if the leaders are good and if the leaders are drawing closer to God, there's more of an opportunity for us to live in peace. And he brings that up here. 
Don't know what hit there. I was doing fine. I'm allergic to the record button. I'll fix it. Quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. That's all we want. I don't think Christians should seek power. I think we should seek Jesus and live faithfully regardless of who's in power. This is good and pleases God our Savior, these prayers, <coughs> who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And ladies, that word there is very inclusive. So I'm not really sure why the NIV in 2011 did not change that to all people. Uh, I do believe that's in the works as they try to make language mean to us what it meant to them. But, <clears throat> sorry, I don't want us to get distracted here. How many people did Christ die to save? Take your time. Not some, not most, not the remnant. When I was a kid, our church was always being tiny, was looked upon as a sign that we were the right church because few there be that find it and we were the remnant. Is that God's intention? Or is saving all, paying all of their debts, a ransom for all people? Fascinates me. Later on in this chapter, people will demand that we take certain phrases as literal, binding, forever upon all cultures and ignore the opening gambit here, which says Christ paid the debts of everybody and wants everybody saved. Now you might be thinking right now, well, he wants them saved, but they're not gonna be saved. You know, I just don't think I'm gonna say that to Jesus. Like, well, that's what you want for your birthday? You just want too much, that's never gonna happen. Really? Really? How, how small is your God? How short are his arms that he can't do what he wants to do? And then when he pays a ransom for all people, that it doesn't work except for the chosen few. I, I think you need to spend some time with that, especially if we're going to handle the rest of the chapter correctly. And there are, there are incorrect ways to do it. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm the one who knows the only correct way to do it. I feed off of scholarships, uh, scholars rather, in um, theology, linguistics, archaeology, and history. I read a lot. Two to three books a week is what I've read since I was 12. Love it. It's my happy place. When we go on a vacation, Cammie often does certain activities and, and the like while I'm sitting quietly you're looking at the sea or the mountains or whatever I'm or around and read. That's my vacation. And it's my fun and my joy and my TV and my staring at phone or whatever you do with your life. Um, and so these words and their context and their place really mean a lot to me, a lot. So for this purpose, because God has ransomed all these people, I was appointed a herald and an apostle 
I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I don't know why he had to say he wasn't lying. He's writing to Timothy, his son and the faith. It doesn't seem to me to make any sense to tell Timothy I'm not lying. But it might have been, might have been this. <clears throat> Timothy is traveling. Timothy's working in Corinth. He's working in Ephesus. He hears what people say about Paul. And a lot of it is negative. Paul had so much negative said about him in his life that it led directly to his death. So file that away too. Regardless, um, so let's say that we had a person named Bob. I always use the name Bob. If your name is Bob, I'm not talking about you or any Bob you know. I just pull it up, all right? And let's say that uh, in a particular church, Bob's always going on about that Patrick's not an apostle, and that Patrick's not supposed to be teaching this, and that Patrick's... And you're a friend of mine, and you're working at that church, and we're writing back and forth. And I, you know, write, well, hey, as you know, I'm a terrible person. Did I mean that? No, it's an inside bit of knowledge that to make Timothy go, yeah, I get it. Bob's still a problem. Or here you can say, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Saying, you know, Timothy gets it. I know, I know. And how many times do you have to keep saying that, Paul? I'm with you. It's just such a burden. It's the only way I can really make this make sense. Now, some seize upon this is another sign that Paul didn't write it because if he did write it and Timothy was a son in the faith, he wouldn't have to say this. I think that's a little bit of thin soup, so I'm not going to go for that one yet, all right? The teacher of the true faith. What's the true faith? I want men, and again, this is people everywhere. Please work with me. Everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Okay. Once you think about the churches in which you were raised and some in which you are still members. And by the way, many of you are in wonderful churches. I know those churches and I know about them, not just out of my old tribe, but also in Protestant and Catholic churches that are just amazing at what they do. A lot of independent churches, you know, I don't have to mention them all. But many of us were in churches where arguing and disputing was an anger and disputing was considered a sign of faithfulness. I do not know how old I was. Um, I do know my father was looking hard at Thailand and he was, um, he was thinking we needed to go to Thailand, be a missionary in Thailand. <clears throat> so we went to a missionary forum of some sort. And again, I was just a kid. They kind of put me in daycare during half of this. I do remember standing at the gate going, I don't know what, I'm, what crime I've even done you know, looking through the bars here. But I did go to some of the sessions and I maybe shouldn't have because anger was one of the signs of faithfulness. One man stood up and it wasn't, um, I've got a hymnal right here. If you don't know what a hymnal is, it's a book with all your hymns in it. Like, uh, it looks like this and the old tribe that I was in because it has shape notes, but and it wasn't even this one. It was the um, a hymnal that was the most popular before this one maybe even two back, but he didn't like some of the songs in it. He thought they were 
just really wrong, like my God and I, because, you know, when heavenly plans were you know, just a dream to be uh, easy, and, and he would yell, he was turning red. His face was swelling, sweat was pouring, and he was yelling, and he said, there's great songs of the church, whose church? And he threw it, and around the room, I said, amen, amen, amen. Paul would have looked around going, no, anger is not what we do. Anger is not a sign of faithfulness. This same lectureship or forum or whatever it was, there were several people that got up and just angry and pointing fingers like, and, and it pleased the crowd. And then a couple had been in, people got up and walked out because they were the targets. How is that showing the love and grace of Jesus? Well, it's not. But here's another question. Notice that I looked right, I went right to anger and disputing. And I skipped right over lifting holy, lifting hands up in prayer. Where, where are your hands when you pray? Very often mine are on the steering wheel. Sometimes mine are on the arms of an airplane that's hit another air pocket. Sometimes I'll fold my hands for our dinners at home, my hands are around my wife. We hug as we pray our prayer for our, our supper, which is only the only meal we really get to eat together on a regular basis. Um, I don't lift my hands up in prayer, although it says everywhere. Do you think that all of my prayers where I was not lifting my hands up were invalid therefore? And in fact, in direct obedience to the command of God. I don't think anybody out there does. And if you do, I'm not really sure why you're, why are you listening to this? Um, it would it seem like that this wouldn't, you wouldn't be my target demo. <laughs> the reason we don't lift our hands everywhere so that the prayer is valid is because we know he's talking about a spiritual thing and a physical thing that in their culture to lift holy hands up was was common, not universal, but common. And that lifting up holy hands is an expression, meaning keep clean, keep yourself clean. So as we approach God, we have clean hands. I can still remember when we were in, uh, in grade school and we'd be playing on the playground and then right after was our lunch. And so the teachers would funnel us into the bathroom to wash our hands. And when we came out, we had to show our hands are clean before we were allowed to go into the cafeteria. God doesn't say your hands have to be clean before you can be praying, but he does want us to spend our life trying to get our hands clean. So he's saying you clean up your life and talk to God. But also there is, there's a physical element here. I was uh, at a church once doing a special series for them. And one of the elders, I think it was a visiting elder, I don't know if it was of that congregation, came up very angry. He said, um, people, for, you know, why are the people raising hands when they're praying? That looks like the Pentecostals. I think he may have even used the term holy roller. So he was a man of great empathy and compassion. And I looked at him and I said, why would they not? And he said, I, no, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a slippery slope. So uh, emotion starts taking over in worship because you wouldn't want emotion in worship, right? You, you want to praise God, but you don't want it to get out of control. You want that to be a, a very subdued checkbox form of worship. 
I just looked at him and I said, can you, do you ever sing him sitting down? He said, of course. I said, do you ever say, sing him standing up? Trick question. I knew his tribe, they always varied. He said, yes. I said, so you can raise your rear end, but not your hands. And he just, of course, he went multicolored. But I said, what is your problem with hands? Is it that if people bring emotion in and they raise hands when our people have always folded hands, that that's a crack in your power and your comfort level? We had a, we had a pretty good talk. I don't know that I ever brought him all the way down, but he, he didn't stomp out. He kept coming. He kept listening. And kudos to him. It, it had to be uncomfortable for him. And I, I'm amazed and I appreciate his heart and his desire to stick it out. But we don't require people to raise their hands because we know Paul wasn't trying to make one rule for all churches, all people in all places at one time, because that's not the way language works. Well, then maybe we should carry that attitude as we move past and just get started on the rest of this chapter. We're not gonna get all the way through. We're gonna look at the next couple, you ready? Also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or girl, uh, gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Do you, have you ever sung the song, Come As You Are to Worship? Do you think Paul was saying, oh, no, you don't? Or was maybe Paul facing a situation, or Timothy, really, facing a situation where women behaved wantonly and where sexual prostitution, you know, what, what are the kind sexual worship or prostitution in the temple was super common and in fact was considered necessary and where licentiousness and lasciviousness, two old words there, are just the rule. And so status is also an issue in these cultures. Before there were central banks, you carried your money with you in the form of jewelry and clothing. And if you didn't have somebody to guard your stuff at home, you sewed it into your garment um, you know, your money is secreted itself around your, your person. You, um, you wore your gold bracelets. You wore your, and you showed your status. And if you had time and people, you could even get your hair done. Okay. When we do it, are we sinning? When a woman buys a nice dress to wear at a wedding and then wears it at church, obviously not a bridesmaid dress. Those aren't, they always say, you can wear these later. They're always wrong, always wrong. You don't wanna wear that. Can a woman wear pearls? Can a woman wear gold? Can she do her hair? I would say yes, yes, yes to all of these. The word decently, decency and modestly here does not refer to um, indecent, the way we would do indecent. You know, somebody showing an awful lot of skin, 
inappropriate slits or shorts and, you know, way up shorts or, or I don't even want to use illustrations. You know what I mean? That's what we think of when we think of immodest. That is not what the word meant in Paul's time. In Paul's time, modesty meant showy, showing your wealth, your power and your status. Now, there are times where that's entirely appropriate. Whenever military people are in their class A's for, um, uh, for a parade or for an honor or for their work, you know, of course, for their work. But yeah, all those ribbons and such, you earned them and that's an important thing and you go ahead and wear that. But how dolled up do you get for church and why do you do it? When I was a boy, we had church clothes. Did you have church clothes? These are clothes reserved for church and you didn't play in your church clothes. I don't see a problem with that. It is when you are wearing your finery to be seen or to be acknowledged as a person of status, as a person of power, or when you are wearing far more expensive stuff than the people around you at that faith community can afford. And if somebody's hungry and their children are hungry and you're sitting beside them, you know, singing, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below while wearing multiple thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, you know, you could sell a necklace and feed this family for three or four weeks. I, I think it's not a sin to have the necklace. I think it's not a sin to wear the necklace, but I wouldn't wear it there. And here's the thing. I'm not making a rule for you. I do not have the authority to make a rule for you. I wouldn't do it if you put a gun to my head. And to me, that's not just an expression. I've lived long enough. <laughs> I, I would not draw that line for you. I've had people say, well, and you know, well, for example, when I was growing up, I'd hear preachers uh, preach against mixed bathing. And I was thinking, when does that happen? You know, that sounds actually rather fascinating. And then later I found out they just meant swimming men and women together in the same place. And I thought, you know, that's, uh, it has its own delights, I'm sure, but it's not the same as the bathing thing that was in my head. Anyway, we were always told, you know, that that's immodest. Well, we would go to camp and the shorts had to come to the top of the knee or the middle of the knee. Anything else was immodest. That is not the word meaning here. In scripture, when they talk about modest, it means more humble, uh, not showy. There are words that are used for you know, dressing in a sec you know, sexually, how do I put this? On purpose to be seen sexually and to be assessed sexually. Now, again, we are not making any excuses for men's lust, no matter what you wear or you don't wear at all. Ladies are not responsible for the thoughts and actions of lustful men, period. That's why in courts, you're never allowed to use as a defense in a rape trial that she dressed like this or she slept with these people. Nope, it's terrible. It should never happen. That's, that's never an excuse for a rapist, not even if it's only in your own head. So we are not shaming women here at all. 
I don't know why he didn't go after the guys. I think it's because the guys pretty much basically all wore the same thing. But I don't really know. The women were an issue at the church where Timothy was. And some of them were hyper-dressing. Maybe I should put it that way, hyper-dressing. Uh, oh, by the way, the words for dressing uh, to be sexually noticed and sexually assessed and sexually desired would be lascivious, licentious, uh, sensual, those type words. All right? That's not what he's, he's not talking about that. But you and I are able to look at this, and we're going to end this here in just a minute and come back to the harder parts next time. But you and I, I think, agree that a woman can wear a wedding ring, right? Well, that's jewelry. What about a necklace? Sure. Well, so this was a limited command given to a limited audience, but with a general principle, and the general principle of don't be a show-off. By the way, I, I don't know how men would do this, but if I, if I have to walk into church in super expensive clothes, I, I think that that might be a problem. Uh, I don't get involved in any of these discussions, but Christian Twitter can sometimes blow up in ways that are not helpful at all. And then somebody will send a screenshot of some popular minister and he's wearing shoes that cost, I forget, it was an obscene amount to me, like $1,000 or $1,500. You know, he has, everything else is carefully rumpled, but everything else there uh, is a super expensive shirt that cost all this money and it just looks rumpled. And they'll say, you know, how dare you? Well, you know, I think I do understand their point, but I believe that gentleman or that woman, whoever, whatever, they, they have to draw their own lines. You draw your lines, but you aren't handed a piece of chalk by God to go around and draw those lines for other people. I would agree it would make me uncomfortable if somebody gave me a pair of $1,500 shoes. I, I'm not sure I, first of all, thank you for your generosity. No, I don't think so. I, um, I would rather, you can hand me a check for the cash and that way it's up to me how I spend it or how I give it or how I use it or you know on fripperies or upon Jesus and that be upon my own head. But I think we all agree, he's not trying to make a rule for your church today. We also agreed that with the lifting hands and failing, failing to lift hands does not negate your prayer. So why don't we carry this attitude forward next week? God bless. I hope you have just a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting us. Go to rsafeharbor.com, play around with the interactive map. If you can give and wish to give, please do. But also let other people know. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Watch us on Facebook or through the website. But let other people know there's a place where it's just about Jesus. It's not about walking around with the chalk, drawing our own lines. See you soon.